0: This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival.
1: Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to this uh, session of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, The first thing I can assure you is you're in for an absolutely fascinating hour. Uh, with our two authors here. Uh, My name's Phil Harding, I'm a journalist and a broadcaster, and it's my pleasure to be uh, chairing uh, this session uh, with our two authors. Um, A couple of pieces of housekeeping just to start off with uh, before we get underway. Um, The first thing, please, is that uh, could you all uh, turn your mobile phones off or on to silent. Have you done yours? Yep, okay. Nothing is more embarrassing than getting a phone call from your debt collector uh, in, the middle, in the middle of the session, really, so you wouldn't want that to happen to you. Um, the other thing to say is, if you are going to be tweeting uh, about this session, uh, and I hope many of you will be, uh, could you wait until the lights go up? Uh, and we come to questions from the audience before you do that, because it's really annoying having the person next to you um, using a phone screen uh, during the session. Um, for those of you who are regular attenders at the festival, the format of this session will be will be very familiar. Um, Anthony and Peter and I are going to talk for about uh, 30, 35 minutes, and then we'll be coming to you for questions from the audience. And... If you do have a question, my advice to you is to get your hand up very early because nothing is more frustrating uh, than to think of that question you were really dying to ask, but you only think of it two minutes uh, before the end. So do get your hands up early, but... If you do have that frustration and you can't get your question in, then don't worry because uh, Anthony and Peter will be signing in the book signing tent and they'll be signing copies of their book afterwards and you'll have a chance to chat to them and ask any questions then. Okay, on to the book itself. Cameron at number 10. Um, It's a fascinating, I don't know whether many of you will have had a chance to look at it yet, but it's a really fascinating Um, inside account of how the Cameron government really operated. Um, It's based on over 300 300 interviews uh, with the key participants in the government and it gives a real feel of what it was like to be in the room when so many of the key decisions were taken from troops in Afghanistan to the bombing of Libya to the delicate negotiations that led to the formation of the uh, Liberal Democrat uh, Conservative Coalition, to the Scottish independence referendum, of course, then through to the 2015 uh, election and victory at that, and then to the European referendum campaign and defeat and Brexit and Cameron's resignation. Um, Anthony, Peter... um, there are two editions of your book. Uh, there's the hardback edition, which is uh, expensive. Been, it's expensive, <laughs> yeah, it's, and good. But this version, the paperback version, amazing is value, to, is up to date yeah. and it's amazing <laughs> value. Yep. Um, and and they the, the, this one you have updated very swiftly and taken through to Brexit. Um, I had the opportunity to read both of the editions of the book, and certainly reading the introduction, it's. The contrast between the two books and between the tone uh, of the two books is, is really quite striking. You had 2015, Cameron victorious, on the steps of Downing Street speaking after he'd just won a majority. Little more than a year afterwards, you had Cameron on the streets of Downing, on the steps of Downing Street, resigning. It's a big change in a year, isn't it?
2: well he's out yeah I mean that's quite
0: (laughs) (laughs) this is the first post Brexit post Prime Minister event we've done isn't it actually so it's uh,
2: yeah it shouldn't have been like this did it Pete (laughs) I mean mean, it should have been wow you know we're still in the EU and wasn't that just so amazing so many people said he'd lose but he said no just chill you know I'll I'll get there I'm going to do it I'll snick in and we were going to say amazing judgement did it on Uh, On the Scottish devolution did on the Scottish referendum and did it on this and that didn't happen and I'm really I blame you for that actually well, (laughs) what can I say? Yeah Uh. Were you (laughs) surprised? Yes Yeah, and and, didn't
1: see it coming um, I
2: Thought he I, I Thought he fought a rotten campaign and the whole time I was saying to them Just be positive, you know. Young people, they want a vision of something positive. Don't hand it to the Brexiters just by endless negativity, much of it exaggerated. You know, I mean, decent people are on both sides. Don't demonise the other side. You know, honourable people are on both sides. Take them seriously. Take their concerns seriously. Don't, you know, it was infantile. It was an infantile campaign that, for better or worse, and let's hope it's for better... Uh, has taken this country out of Europe, and that might yet precipitate a second Scottish uh, referendum and the break-up of Europe and other uh, things, which, of course, you know, many in the audience might think is a good thing.
1: Are we going to, remember Cameron, so we going to remember Cameron for anything other than Brexit now, Peter?
0: I think he will be remembered for other things. Really? Uh, although this will completely colour and define his premiership. The yes. events of the 23rd of June will... Yeah definitely, and the days after, uh, before he resigned, uh, will colour the way we see him for years, decades to come. But I think it's wrong to see him as just the Prime Minister who lost a referendum that many argued he didn't need to call. I think there are many other things that are interesting about him and many other perspectives about his record. The fact that he did put together and lead a coalition, the first peacetime coalition uh, since the 1930s, and all sorts of things were happening, a huge range of reforms and a set of circumstances that were very difficult to manage. So I think there are, on, on one side of the ledger, there is the referendum result, which many people will argue about for years to come. On the other side of the ledger, all the other things he did which shouldn't be forgotten. So
1: you think history in the fullness of time will be kinder to him? Possibly.
0: I mean, it does depend how Brexit turns out, as Anthony of course. was saying. Of course. Um, if it turns out to be a very difficult an unmanaged process with all sorts of unknown consequences, which his successor and successors to come will struggle to deal with, then he will certainly be seen
1: probably not very well in the eyes of historians to come. In the book, you say when they came into office in 2010, this is the Conservatives, we didn't expect Europe to form a big part of the agenda. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, that's, and I think that's he based wasn't on, entirely right about that, was well, he? That, and um, that's
1: based on an interview with Cameron.
2: Yeah, uh, quote, absolutely. Well, he didn't come into politics about Europe. He uh, has never particularly liked, he never particularly liked those people in the Conservative Party who he regarded as Euro-obsessive as well as Euro-sceptic. Yeah. He came into politics uh, with a vision of whether it was the guilt of an old Etonian or whether it was more genuine and deep. With a vision of wanting to heal the country, unify the country, and to uh, make it a more modern, uh, thoughtful place. Uh, And you know, he tried doing that. And a lot of it was haywire and bonkers between 2000 and. Five when he became party leader you remember uh, and but he was driving that forward. then suddenly huge moment for him 2008 was the crash and everything that he tried to do in those first three years as peter brilliantly describes in a book that he wrote called uh, back from the brink had to be reset mm. and suddenly it was all about the, the, the massive deficit and cut 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 yeah. um and getting credibility and was that you know,
1: overshadowing everything
2: else yeah so it was much, really right? and, and yep. so he went into the 2010 general election with really no clear idea I mean, was it about an austerity party cutting at all costs or was it still about you know that modernizing big society agenda and um, for the first couple of years in power uh, he it was still ambivalent about what he was trying to do. Yes, it was about austerity, but yes, he wanted to try and get modernization, big society, uh, and then the driver of that, the person, Steve Hilton. Um, you you no doubt remember the person who padded around Number Ten without shoes, as, as, as without Cameron's socks, yep. um, uh, possibly smelly feet, unknown, uh, locked away in government archives. Uh, but you know he's the odd. You know people by and large in Number Ten. Tend to wear shoes and socks he didn 't and his ideas were similarly quite sockless really um, <laughs> and, and, and he left in two thousand and three, blew himself up and 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 thought that everyone was just uh stupid and then Cameron was into his next phase and I think that he was just uh desperate to try and clear Europe out of the way so he could get back to the kind of things that in 2005 had made him party leader.
1: Did he have any choice but to call a referendum? It's a very, very good question. It'll be fought over
0: for, well, years to come, but the decision-making process. I mean, essentially, it came to a point in 2012 in the summer where he consulted William Hague and George Osborne. Essentially, the three of them came to that decision. And as you may remember, there were a number of rebellions on the Conservative side of the coalition over Europe, over the budget, over whether there should be a referendum at all, beyond whether they had this referendum lock, which was any further pressure, any further power transfer to Brussels. And that position could not hold politically. And because UKIP were biting on the heels of the Conservative Party at that point, not the Labour Party, but the Conservative Party, the political pressure was immense. So politically and tactically, it was a sensible decision to take. <laughs> Strategically, it, it's, it's an open call, I think, because he realised that it was going to have to be taken at some point, whether it was going to be on his watch. He decided, actually, that he should take a lead and say, let's tackle this issue, the country should decide, despite the fact that it had been a running saw within the Conservative Party for 40 years, ever since Ted Heath... <laughs> took the country in. it had been this sore that he felt had to be dealt with a boil that had to be lanced. so essentially strategically he came to this position it's debatable but he decided to do it but then it was the way he pursued it after the election last year that is extremely contentious. did they put it in
1: the manifesto because they expected to be in coalition with liberal democrats and therefore didn't expect (laughs) to have to carry it out
0: well, it was in the manifesto. It yeah, was yeah, yeah, but, but,
1: but uh, did they put it in the manifesto in the expectation that, that it, they wouldn't actually have to call the referendum because sure the Lib Dems wouldn't let them?
0: Yeah, I'm sure that was part of the calculation. In the thinking. Yeah, in whatever yeah. coalition mark yeah. two yeah. there would have been, it, yeah. may, it may have been a trade-off. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yes, I mean, he didn't expect to win that the, election.
1: One of the themes that comes out, and it, you, obviously on Europe, but on other issues as well, is the state of rebelliousness there was amongst the conservative backbenchers um yeah they
2: never liked him i mean we just got to you know be honest about it a lot of his conservative party in parliament never liked him including some of his ministers why not and many despised him well well you know for a number of reasons uh because he was an atonian because he was a public school i mean go back in in tory history you have uh, John Major, Prime Minister, state school. You have Margaret Thatcher, Ted Heath, uh, state schools. It was a weird thing, in a way, for the Conservative Party to do suddenly Hang on a to go I, on. I would
1: have thought public and, school and was a good thing in the, in the no, Conservative no, Party. No, no, no,
2: because there was a whole generation. There was a new generation ah. of state school uh, ah. Conservative MPs, and those precisely who had been at public school wanted him, him even less to be an Etonian. And he was never. He wasn't good at handling. That image of chumocracy, chillaxing, uh, having his friends uh, around him—it was a definite negative. But that wasn't the real reason uh, they despised him. It was a lot about Europe. He was, you know, that very statement that he made about uh, wanting to not make Europe dominate. Uh, They hated Europe. A lot of his MPs, as we know hated the EU, uh, wanted out, and thought that he was weak on it, indecisive, unconvincing. So that was another factor, and they didn't like a lot of what he tried to do. Well, so just, just, look, I mean, so 0.7% of national income on on overseas development aid, I mean, I think that's great, but they thought, why? Um, and. They didn't like gay marriage uh, at all, and it played very badly in their constituencies. So you had these people who, uh, who who didn't like him, and this was his chance to smash them. You know, he so as we were saying, he wanted Europe not to be a big part of it. He was constantly deflected from what he wanted to do by the crash in '08, by the Lib Dems coming into power in 2010. That meant taking what he wanted away you know, for, 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 from him. And then he had to win the general election from 2013. That was, you know, all that was there apart from the Scottish uh, uh, referendum. And then he gets power in 2015 and he wants to get ahead with his own agenda. He works it out very clearly, a very left-of-centre agenda that makes the Tory party they dislike him. When
1: they didn't like him, yep. I, I remember meeting several, they used to call him Dave, disparagingly. Yep. What, yeah. what was all that about? Is that a sort well, of Well, Call Me Dave you
2: know? was the book. So a man called uh, Lord Ashcroft uh, uh, spent quarter of a million, half a million, don't know uh, how much, it's a lot of money, yep. um, uh, on a book which he paid a journalist called Isabel Oatshock great writer actually and that book was called Call Me Dave and and that was I don't think that was meant as a friendly uh, title (laughs) Um, and that was the one that talked about the pig's Head. So, 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 so we are the kind of the, we're the kosher one. There's no, there's no pig's head. Uh, didn't do in, is, is it's no not pig? even no, the no pork. No not pork in ours. But, in ours. <laughs> so, was but, this I mean, about? It was, a, it was a kind of it was a slagiography. Was, was, was this because
1: his the to- backbenchers didn't like the hugger hoodie? They didn't like going uh, sledding all that with stuff, huskies. Yeah. Yeah. All the yeah. Steve Hilton stuff. They, didn't, of of like the, they th- didn't like the they didn't like the decontamination. They still wanted to be the nasty party.
2: Bullshit was what they thought it was. Right. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I can't use that word on a public stage. And language, what <laughs> language? No, I mean, like. they
0: resented the fact that he didn't win. You know, yeah. he, he, went, he came to, yeah. to the leadership as yeah. the person who would change to win. That was his yeah. slogan, yeah. that he would be the winner after all of his predecessors who had led the party to, let's not forget, three significant defeats. Yeah. He was the one that was going to turn the whole thing around. And yeah. the fact that he didn't win the 2010 election was a huge... Uh, source of resentment for many of them. They they, and they, they hated the they coalition. Were and they hated the fact they were sitting there next to 50 or so Liberal Democrats yeah. who they despised, yeah. who they had fought in their constituencies for years, yeah. not to yeah. be sitting yeah. beside yeah. them, but yeah. opposite them. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: And, look, and they hated him for winning in 2015. They, they hated he didn't win in 2010 <laughs> yes, outright, yeah. but <laughs> blame me down. The bugger then went on and won, <laughs> yes. and, and they were just scratching around. Pete, you remember you and I on election the day after election day was sort of nosing around some, some Tories who really hated him. And you could see how really teed off they were because they're having to say, oh, it's a really good thing that David, Dave yes. has won. And you could see that they just were livid yeah, because they yeah. hated him yeah. so much. But of course, what it did give them was it gave them the referendum and that was their chance to exact justice. Still on
1: Europe, uh, just briefly, yeah. another theme that comes out of the book is the way that Cameron and his ministers seem to have continually misread the mood of the EU leaders. Um, and was that Cameron's fault? Was it the fault of the Foreign Office? Was it the fault of the diplomats? Who was, where was, that was, he, they seem to have continually misread what, what was going on in, in various EU capitals. People. Well, a lot of
0: diplomacy was going on behind the scenes. In fact, yeah. the work began before the last election. The, yeah. the work yeah. between all the, the, the yeah. diplomatic side and the, within Brussels, the, the office there, the British office, sizing out what various capitals and work and of course what cameron was doing and his close team led by ed llewellyn who of course knew a lot of people in the european capitals on the official and political side they were investing all their hopes in Angela merkel and had been doing since 2012 that that relationship was crucial but even then i think there was a misunderstanding between berlin and london as to what the referendum and what the negotiation in particular was to achieve. Did they rely he thought and and the his team thought that she would give more and would be able to persuade the other leaders more than she was able to and that I think was part of the part of the miscalculation that happened. Did they rely on Merkel
1: too much? I think they did. Yeah. And I
2: domestically her ground shifted from under her feet she Mm, might you know she liked him she had this kind of rather sort of I I think she quite fancied him actually you know (laughs) uh, and and he was quite good at playing (laughs) uh, at at playing up, up to that and she kind of thought of him as the kind of naughty younger brother who she could kind of just stroke along and get get more into the right place Mm -hmm. Uh, but domestically things had changed for her in Germany so the leeway that she might have had to to push Europe in a more British friendly way uh, didn't happen uh, for her so I think that was another do you think he
1: flirted back
2: what do you think <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I I was you, you guys would talk uh, to the look, guys inside look, you the know, room. I mean, but, yeah. so, so I'm writing about Thatcher at the moment, and, and she was an appalling flirt. I know. And personally, because yeah, you were, you were edi- yeah. editing today's programme yeah, 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 at yeah. the time, I think our history could have been different. Feet Dennis. up on the table. <laughs> <laughs> <whisked> and, uh, <laughs> glass <laughs> of whiskey. Totally. You know, I mean, yeah. look. You know. I mean, they all do it. And what's wrong with with that? I mean, is it charm? Is it charisma? Uh, is it flirting? Yeah, I mean, they had a special relationship. The first time they met was a disaster because mm. he'd take them out of the, uh, the conservatives out of the European People's Party, the the right of center grouping uh, in Europe. And she thought, who is this upstart? And it was really bad uh, when they met in Berlin. Uh, but you know, just bit by bit, he he charmed her around. He knew how to flatter her, the right things to say. Um, and you no, know, I mean, she was. I think uh, to say that she was in his thrall is going too far. But she certainly uh, was very amused. And they're not a whole bundle of fun. The other European leaders. I mean, come on, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, it is, oh, I don't it know. is, it's a s- great is quite interesting. And they, uh, you know, they got on uh, well, uh, but yeah, absolutely. He thought, and Ed Llewellyn, the key figure in number 10, thought that uh, she was going to do more for them uh, than it turned out.
1: Immigration. You say no issue so skewered Cameron in his five years in government as immigration, and it clearly played a role in uh, Brexit. The problem was they they had a policy that was totally incoherent on immigration, didn't they? They had a a target that was unrealisable and yet they had no control over EU numbers coming in. How did they end up with with a policy that was so incoherent and unachievable?
0: Well, interestingly, the, the figures, I think, in 2008, 2009, after the crash, had become quite depressed in terms of inward migration, immigration into the UK. And I think they misjudged it. They thought that Perhaps those figures would stabilise and remain at a lower level. I mean, they were still over 100,000. And they wanted to be within tens of thousands, famously, was the commitment. Um, But the irony was that the economy began to grow. And when that happened and the Eurozone economies continued to stagnate, then more people wanted to come and live and work in the UK. So the irony for Cameron is perhaps the success of the economic recovery encouraged far more people to come which then became much more politically problematic in terms of the numbers for the Conservative
1: Party but they must which have had known gone, this wasn't going to work and it wasn't sustainable it, well
2: it, you, that's interesting that's interesting I, I'm I don't think that when they, I think they were naive I don't think they lied about it uh, they were Guilty of just simply not thinking through what an intractable problem uh, immigration is to an economically flourishing country when you have an economically stagnating Europe. And then, when on top of that, you then have the Middle East going wrong mm. and North Africa and the insurge of refugees uh, are there. But it was the problem that damaged his entire premiership and lost the referendum because it was simply too easy for the Brexit side to make out whether uh, true or not that they will be able outside the EU to control numbers coming in I would think a far more significant factor is the relative performance of Britain as against the EU. There is limited uh, a freedom of operation uh, uh, and also George Osborne was saying the Chancellor w- was wanting the immigration because uh, the, these were, were workers who were fueling uh, the great economic success story whereas Theresa May uh, at the Home Office far more guarded about it.
1: Yeah we'll come back to Theresa May in a minute. Um, just one other question on relations with his party. You You picked out Two of the issues which he was most heavily criticised for in his party, gay marriage, yeah. and international, and the 0.7 on international development budget. Why do you think he chose those two issues? Because on the face of it, they don't seem very Cameron things to to pick out. Uh, and, uh, but you know who is ah.
2: who, who is who is Cameron. I mean, ah, I don't think that that most prime ministers have big agendas when they come into power. If you go back to to '45, you have Attlee clearly had a big welfare state yep. agenda. Heath in 1970 a big Europe agenda. Thatcher a big rolling back anti-trade union uh, agenda. Most don't, and most are like. Churchill, when he came back in 1951, he was asked what his policy was, and he thought, "What? What a weird question that is! What, what are you <laughs> going to do, Prime Minister?" And he said, "Red meat and not getting scuppered," uh, <laughs> which is not, not letting the, the country's economy. And that was it. You know, that was and, and that you know, uh, Thatcher is unusual. Cameron uh, had instincts. You know, he is a left of centre. I think guilt plays a big part in it, but he's also uh, genuinely and partly. this was the uh, illness of his son Ivan and then uh, the loss of, of, of Ivan just before he came um, to, to, to power that em- as prime minister that emotionally affected him and you know he was so pleased to win In he was crazily pleased in 2015 to win uh, the general election despite what his own backbenchers and many other people thought because now we could get on and have this kind of uh, of 0.7% development agenda, gay marriage, taking that forward, compassion in in prisons, really thinking about what do we do with people who are locked up? Are we just going to incarcerate them forever or are we going to try and reform them? He had very radical plans about um, families getting out of uh, control, about education very radical that his party and you know he just said there's one problem there's only one thing i've got to get out of the way before i can at last at last after 10 years get my ideas interaction and that is this thing called the eu referendum
1: you say guilt where, do, where does the guilt come from
2: well i think uh that he uh is a socially compassionate person i think anybody's had that kind of very privileged education, upper middle class uh, background. His parents were very caring. He's a he's a, he he is a very homely person. I remember one time we were talking to him. He said, "Look, got to go. Uh, Mum's coming to to, to, to supper." Yeah, you know, and, and that was not an act. He he was he would always think about uh, his 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 family. One of his aides uh, when uh, he won when he was coming back from the palace in, in two thousand and ten. Uh, She's called Liz Sugg, and she looked after, she did all the planning and timetabling and transport. She was trying to get him, talk to him as he was coming back from the palace to tell him where he had to stand. And his phone kept on, his mobile kept on being engaged. And she thought, blimey, that's what it's going to be like now, he's Prime Minister, I'll never get through. Then he came through, uh, really apologetic, apologetic to her and said, sorry Liz, I was just chatting to Mum. Uh, she wanted to know how the queen was, um, and, and, and you know it was—it was it a—you was uh, know—he was a homely person. I think has that sense, and you can laugh at it and ridicule it, but absolutely true of the upper middle class sense of responsibility. And he was a one nation uh, conservative. He never liked us, uh, comparing him to uh, Baldwin, who was the interwar prime minister but he modernized the conservative party brought it into line with the working class vote he never liked that
1: you use this phrase uh, was he an essay crisis prime minister <laughs> this phrase essay crisis <laughs> would you uh, first of all like to explain it and then tell whether tell us whether you think he was an essay crisis prime minister well yes i mean what does essay crisis mean first please
0: well essay crisis i'm sure many people in this room <laughs> had
1: an essay crisis at 11.30 at night. Maybe not you, Antonella. No, uh,
2: no, no, I was uh, constantly at university. I was Every night was an essay crisis. <laughs> but um, um,
1: I think sometimes he did leave quite a few things to the last minute. So it's the person at university who leaves their essay till the very so, last yes, minute. Yes, okay, their well, essay at the university yep, is left okay, to the yep, last yep, minute,
0: yep. and they think, tomorrow morning, it's got to be handed at 9 yep. o'clock. <laughs> oh, dear. I've got a lot of work to do. And there were quite a few occasions where he did not leave himself enough time and enough room for manoeuvre. I mean, principally, one of the most notorious examples of this was the run-up to the Syria vote in the House of Commons in um, August, the end of August 2013, almost three years ago, where he had not as as the political pundits did enough pitch rolling he had not spoken to enough people on all sides of the house of commons his team had not had enough time they did not make enough time to consult and by doing that he wasn't he didn't get all his um ducks in a row, he hadn't prepared for that vote, he hadn't got everyone, they hadn't got the numbers, the whip oper- whipping operation hadn't been successful or effective, they hadn't spoken to enough backbenchers and they went into that vote unprepared and they lost it. Um, and that's and one notorious example. He just I, as Anthony was saying, speaking to his temperament, because he was in a way so his, he was so, such a becalmed character, he had such an even temperament about him that he would sometimes be quite easy not not relaxing but he would say all these things will be sorted out Was all these lazy? things will be quite but is in, he lazy I, no i think lazy is is the wrong description but i think perhaps more optimistic that various yeah. difficult political would problems would turn out all right, a, out all right a, in the a, end. A, a
2: bit Pollyanna ish. Uh, you know, something will turn up, uh, as a, a sense about him. Hmm. And, and, but but you know, he, he was, you know, that Syria vote, Pete, it was, you know, he was on holiday in Cornwall. Message came through from Switch, the number 10 Switchboard, uh, to say there'd be reports coming through of um, chemical weapons being used uh, in Syria. And he would just, his heart would sometimes take over from his head and he'd rush in. There were endless times of him doing that. At the time he turned up, you know, in, in, in the wrong welly boots. And he, <laughs> he was told that, you know, uh, j- j- just tell the story about the welly boots.
0: Well, this was the floods yeah. in Somerset, uh, in Somerset yeah. yep. famously. And uh, he turned up and one of his aides said, uh, you, you can't wear those boots. And he had a, the, the hunter boots, so very hunter, smart, yeah, smart, posh yeah. boots with a, a little logo yeah. there. They were very smart black boots. And uh, one of his aides said, "If you wear those, the front papers—they'll go. The front pages will have these images of you looking posh, out of touch, walking through, just turned up from London, wearing." So someone was dispatched to go out to Asda. As it turned out, (laughs) somewhere in Somerset, (laughs) and they came back with a fantastically uh, nice, I think, for cheap uh, looking looking, um, green wellies, and they were the right size. Put them on, fine jacket, everything all sorted out. Green wellies. He went out. All the pictures were taken, and it was fine. There was no real, not much comment at all, until there was a focus group. Uh, about two or three weeks later, which Linton Crosby, the famous Australian political guru who yeah. he employed yeah. to help yeah. him win the election in 2015, and he came out and said, Dave, there's been a problem with my Australian accent already. <laughs> so, there's been a problem here. <laughs> uh, a lot of people were finding that you look really posh in those green wellies <laughs> as you're we walking Cause they're through, Because yeah. <laughs> they look really smart, and that's the see, problem.
2: But, um, but, he couldn't but, win. <laughs> that was just typical of him. He would rush into things uh, and not think it through, often driven by his heart and sense about what's right right what's wrong he had a very strong moral uh, instinct and, and reaction and his team would often have to pull him back uh from things and sometimes because it went very wrong like in libya he just he couldn't believe uh what gaddafi was trying to do and, and wanted to rush in uh, and did rush in uh with um uh, results which haven't worked out anything like uh, he'd hoped but you know, he was a young man i mean he's still not 50. So yeah, at the age that, that, that. That, 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 that most yeah. uh, people are coming up to, the climax of their career, yeah. um, he's not there yet. And, and I think in many ways, you know, we thought he was quite a young man um, and his mistakes were often those of a young man.
1: Scotland. Uh, he took a big risk with the Scottish independence referendum and it came off. What, did, did he see it as a gamble at the time
2: yeah a huge gamble uh but because uh, he knew that he would have to go i mean you you knew he'd have to go so he kept saying i'm not going to go if i lose uh that meant absolutely certainly he was going to go <laughs> and, and, and he had worked it out he got his speech his resignation speech uh lined up and there's a picture in that book uh there of him sitting with the children on his lap at five in the morning uh, with his closest team, uh, together with um, one of the people he lost along the way, a very brilliant civil servant, Chris Martin, age 42, Principal Private Secretary, absolutely loved. One of the very few times I've seen him in tears was at the funeral for Chris Martin. And he was, um, so he died, uh it, just uh, just before last christmas and you can see him there in that picture uh, you can see the, the the relief on his face he was just petrified that if he lost uh he was going to be compared to lord north the british prime minister who lost america so, I mean, like, you know, America would still be a British colony, presumably, uh, had that not happened. Uh, uh, and, you know, it was in his mind all the time. He started getting very, very edgy. And everyone here will remember uh, him coming up and, and making those passionate speeches about saying how much in his heart he yearned uh, for this uh, uh, win uh, and what it, would, uh, what it meant to him. And I kind of wish he'd had the same passion in the European. And I, uh, you know, they why would they listen to me? Of course they uh, wouldn't. But the whole time I was saying, for goodness sake, give us that same passion, talk from your heart. Because then people, when you talk from your your heart, people listen. When you talk up here, people kind of just carry on with their social media. But it
1: also convinced them that Project Fear worked. That's, and, and therefore they tried to, as it were, use that template.
2: I think that's a brilliant point. Mm. I think that they switched over, psych- without even really admitting it, uh, they uh, thought that the negative campaigning that had helped win them the 2015 general election would win from the referendum and it was a massive miscalculation uh, and uh, just the focus also on the economy they thought they would win it on the economy no 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 it was infantile as i said it.
1: Um, Theresa may a, she? A, a what, what's she up to a, now? Well, that's, I don't know. I, I you mean, hear the, she, the Home Secretary. I don't know. I think she's still there. Yes, she could be. Okay. Um, she she does. She she's in this book, but you don't get the impression that it, she was an integral part of the Cameron government. It's almost like there was a sort of yeah. separate Theresa Pete, May Pete, how,
2: as an employee of the BBC currently, would you answer that question about <laughs> Theresa uh, May? <laughs> Obviously, with total impartiality. Let's
0: um, just say she wasn't a central character no. um, in Cameron's team. Although, interestingly, I mean, he really did, in a way, we talk about Angela Merkel as uh, sort of this relationship, as a sort of younger brother who did he in a way looked up to her he, he did have this respect and there were quite a few occasions where there was uh, almost treating with kid gloves the home office team that they were a force to be reckoned with from number 10's perspective they had to tread quite carefully with her with her special advisors who are now running Theresa yep. May's team in number yep. 10 yeah. they had to be very delicately negotiated some of the things that were going on there were of course huge clashes between Michael Gove who at that point was very close to David Cameron before the the, referen- the EU referendum, and Theresa May, and she, he was in the, in the Justice Department, of course, and he, he was very close to Cameron. So there was quite a lot of delicate, but she was extremely loyal to him. Um, there was not much in the way of counter-briefing or briefing from the Home Office, and any tension was really quite contained. And kept very private, and her team were extremely loyal to her as Absolutely. well. Absolutely,
2: she's a very proper, steady, un-un um, uh, f- film starish kind of person. She is what you get. And he, you know, she was ten years older, been around far longer than than he had seen it all. And you know, they were not mates. Uh, they didn't go and uh, out for. Uh, Indians together in uh, in, she in, in, have many in the, in the, the Whitehall she? tantrum. No, she's very self-contained with yeah. her husband uh, Philip, but she had two has two very close advisors, Nick, Timothy, and Fiona. And I think it was uh, w- 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 we talk about this in the book such a mistake that uh, Number Ten then fell out with them.
1: You can and, already and they, hear the next book forming uh, And, here, the, can't and they <laughs> fell <Yeah>. out.
2: <laughs> they fell out with them because. Uh, George Osborne saw her as a rival, yeah. and yeah. Gove. You know the interesting thing about Boris and uh, and uh, and Gove is that Boris uh, always thought he'd want to be prime minister, but when it came to it, he thought, nah, don't fancy that. <laughs> Whereas uh, Gove kind of never did, but then when he saw half a chance, thought, yeah, I, I like the look of that. And, and and they pushed. There was a pathetic. She gave a speech that they interpreted in 2013 as staking out her claim to succeed. And that made them, the mist came over their eyes yeah. and the mm. negative briefing started against her and it ended up with both those two people who are now uh, the two most powerful people in number 10, below Theresa May, so kind of lacking of lacking foresight. Uh, it alienated them and they both had to leave her group.
1: And yet you say in the book, so many of her policies and instincts, not least on immigration, chime with Cameron's own. What led you to that judgment?
2: You wrote that bit, Pete. <laughs>
0: that must have been the bit when you were away on holiday yeah. and I just I just snaked that, that sex uh, paragraph in. I've read the book. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean they did their instincts did chime, yeah. particularly in the early days of the coalition. I mean they were at one before, as Anthony yeah. said, those tensions really yeah. did fish her out. Um, on immigration. I mean he really saw her in that first early period of the coalition as his most loyal senior minister. Um, and we were talking about Michael Gove. I mean, there, there were tensions beginning to emerge with Michael Gove and we may come on to talk about this at some point, but uh, before he, of course, was moved and reshuffled out from education. But with her, he felt that she, he could completely rely on her and her instincts. And that's why he kept on backing up this pledge of tens of thousands, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because he thought that she could deliver on it. As it yes. turned out, they just couldn't. And deliver. she
2: wasn't one of those right-wing, uh, Eurosceptic Tories. She was pro-social reform. Uh, she was mildly pro europe but but not you know one of the big europhiles, so very similar. Philosophically, in terms of what they wanted to do. Modern progressive Tories remember that Theresa May was the person who said we mustn't It'd make this the a nasty, nasty party. party. Yeah. And yeah. he was totally at one with that. Yeah. So, you know, the odd kind of thing, but maybe it's not so odd, is that there's been a lot of dissing of Cameron and his policies by Theresa May, implied implicit or explicit. But that kind of goes with the territory of taking over as a prime minister, particularly when you didn't expect to take over that quickly. Uh, so that, you know, staking out your territory, that's pretty much, uh, uh, you know, to be expected. What
1: Mm. do you think Cameron will do next? Well, from the
0: photographs, he seems to be spending a lot of time sunbathing. He's been on holiday, he's (laughs) been on on holiday, he's been on holiday four times. Four times.
1: Four times, times. yeah, he's on his
0: fourth holiday. he, the thing we haven't talked about is his relationship with Samantha and how important that was to him. And she really was instrumental to his rise and his success. She was the one who encouraged him to go for it actually, in 2005. 2005. It's not very much written about, that she was the one saying, you know, George Osborne might go for this, you may lose your chance forever. So he, I think, feels that he owes her a lot of time, although she became much more comfortable in the role of consort to him as prime minister as, as time went on. To start off with, she really didn't it very comfortable. She hated she those hated moments, moments being in, in the limelight. And, and
2: and the moments on the aeroplane just before the aircraft door would open mm. up and and the walkway down with she all the cameras. She, she would yeah. hate yeah. all that. Yeah. It, and yeah. and really, because she's quite a private person. She's not a she's not she's not a, a, a self, naturally self confident woman.
0: Yeah. And but I think he's spending all the time enjoying it with her and, uh, and and his children and cool. I don't know. I'm not sure he has huge career ambitions like a Tony Blair to go off and be
1: a peace envoy. Or uh, I'm not sure that's really. But uh... Wait, so he's
2: done well at that, hasn't he?
1: <laughs> well, can we put can we put the lights up, please? Do, does he need to earn money? He's pretty uh, rich. He's pretty rich. I and, wouldn't have thought he needs. She's very to, rich, um, isn't she? Yeah. I'm sure they'll survive. Yeah, I think they uh. will. Yeah. yeah, hands up, please. Questions. Oh my goodness, lots of hands. Okay, uh, can we start? Uh, here, please, with that gentleman with the beard. Thank you. Um, I still don't feel like I, I, I have a good feeling for his process of government. You talked about him being a, an essay crisis person and so on, but um, it seems that very often he was surprisingly out of touch with what his government were doing. Um, and, you know, the endless U turns when he th- we'd have policy announced, and then, which would unravel within. 24 to 48 hours. And the most spectacular example of that might be the health and social care bill, where he got himself into an utterly disastrous position on the health service, which seemed to come almost as a surprise to him. Was he in touch?
2: Um, Okay, so so I I think that it's very hard, not just for somebody so young, but for any prime minister. I'm sure Theresa May will find this. You are having to cover, I don't know whether you've been in government, such a vast territory and certainly uh, he was uh, not, he he was an essay crisis often because suddenly uh, this problem had come to the top of his inbox and he wasn't thinking about it. So I think that uh, he did work very hard, totally agree with Peter about that. Uh, The civil servants were amazed and delighted after Blair and Brown that there was somebody so orderly in their conduct of business. Uh, But yes, I I think that that there were many, many uh, lapses, but I think it's partly inherent in the job of a modern prime minister to try and imagine that you can be on top of every single department, every single issue, every single crisis, while also he was devoting a lot of his time to terrorism, keeping the country safe. He'd always, in his boxes that prime ministers have overnight, go straight to the security box look at the terrorist threat, go way down below the um, summative report on terrorist threats and want to see the individual uh, reports coming in. It, 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 you know, there's a job there for, for 20 people uh, and he picked the things to, to focus on, didn't always pick wisely, yeah. Good point. Gentleman Good point.
1: towards the back. Got the microphone. Uh, thanks. Um, being in coalition
0: with the Liberal Democrats meant that he could ignore his own right wing. Do you think he preferred being Prime Minister of a coalition government, and do you think he was a better Prime Minister of a coalition than of a single-party majority? No, I think that's a fair comment. I think he probably was a better coalition Prime Minister, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, I mean, he he is someone who likes to reach out and make compromises. Um, in a way, perhaps too much, and he delegates too much. And we're talking about the Health and Social Care Bill. He delegated too much to Andrew Lansley, and that... Instance, And it was people like Shirley Williams and the Liberal Democrats who said, hang on here, you've got to really think about this and stop and pause and revise this. I think he enjoyed the space which the coalition gave him in which to try things out that he didn't think was going to be possible because of the financial crash and because of the limitations of the the sort of plan A, the economy, he could pursue reforms which he knew the Lib Dems would be comfortable and happy with, but not all of his side would be happy with. So to that extent, it gave him a, a sense of a sort of security
2: blanket and a, a, and a space to experiment and just while getting the next question linking to that Andrew Lansley who was head of uh, who was social who was health secretary had been not only his boss but George Osborne's boss and often he was just thinking he could trust people in charge of departments to get on and do their own things I mean Osborne himself youngest Chancellor for 120 years um, very inexperienced Cameron, youngest prime minister for 198 ninety-eight, one hundred ninety-eight years. These things matter. You, and you tend to trust older people uh, to get on with it. And that's, of course, what went wrong, wrong with Gove, that they trusted Gove to get on it and not make the kind of muddles that he was making in education. Um, and it was the only way that they felt they could do things. Lady over here. Um, could you talk a little bit about uh, his relationship with Boris Johnson and his reaction to... Um, ...Johnson coming out as
0: a Brexiteer. Well, there How long have you got? How uh, long have you got? This is chapter 44. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, he, they, the interesting thing with Boris is he had a lot of affection for Boris. He had a, he had a lot of time for him. And remember, I mean, he, he was the one that had to persuade Boris to stand to be mayor of London uh, in 2008... Uh, and that gave him, Boris, a platform to to create his own political support and his own career. But in a way, it was a relationship that did become very muddled and rocky. And we talk about various fiery text, me- text messages with expletives and F-words firing between them at various points. And he really did invest a lot of time. At the beginning of this year, they really did think that Boris would stay... On the, on the campaign to Remain, the Remain campaign, right up until the point, to the weekend, when Boris went out in front of the cameras. They had been on the phone hours before that, uh, Cameron and Boris, trying to wrangle out some sort of deal, and it just didn't work.
2: Totally shocked that that he did that because Cameron, you could say he's naive, thought that he'd got Boris and given Boris enough uh, of a promise of a really big uh, office uh, after uh, foreign secretary. Uh, What's he doing now? And um, (laughs) and uh, enough to uh, and they felt. They felt kind of betrayed by Boris, but this is what they thought about Boris. Uh, they thought, okay, so let's play, let, let, let's let's game plan this and pretend to be Boris. If I'm Boris and I say I'm going to be on Brexit and lead that campaign and we win, I'm going to become prime minister. Um, and if we lose, I will be the great hero of the right and best place to take over from Cameron when he stands down, which is only going to be two and a half years away. Remember, um, so that from Boris, they they kind of understood Boris. They knew Boris. What you see with Boris is what you get on the uh, lip, a uh, lid um, uh, for Boris. And uh, but Gove, they felt utterly betrayed mm. by because. Gove had given them assurances. First of all, he, that he wasn't going to go over to Brexit, and secondly, that he wasn't going to lead Brexit. Uh, and so, so uh, the simmering anger uh, towards Gove from them is massive, um, as mm. we talk about. Yeah, oh, lady over here.
1: Um,
0: one relationship that interests me is between Cameron and Osborne because you get the impression from the outside that Osborne's wearing the trousers half the time, you know. And um, so the, the relationship between Cameron Osborne and the Bank of England, you know, that sort of triumvirate is, is peculiar. And I wonder if you um, investigated that or what your comments are. Okay. Well, it was a very, very close relationship um, it was a very solid relationship, probably the most harmonious relationship between a prime minister and a chancellor for at least 30, 40 years. Uh, they really did work together. In fact, Cameron uh, would say at the two meetings at the 8.30 in the, mor- in the morning and the 4 p.m., the two daily meetings uh, at Number 10 where they would plan out what was happening and decide on the various issues. He would say, what does George think instinctively, even sometimes when Osborne wasn't there? What does George think? What would George think? So he was absolutely fundamental to Cameron's uh, leadership. In in many ways, we call it a dual uh, premiership. Uh, Only at the very end, during the referendum campaign, was there tension between Osborne and Cameron's team. They felt that Osborne, and we alluded to this earlier over the Scottish referendum, was taking the lessons of that far too literally and pushing a much, very strong negative message, uh, the project fear, in a sense, and that they felt that he had to be reined back. And in fact, they did have various discussions where they said, you've got to to temper your language. And
2: in a way, it didn't, well, as we saw, it didn't work. And just to add to that, they weren't friends personally. They weren't socially, they they were uh, Osborne, London, Metropolitan, and Cameron, Shire, Tory. So not intensely close uh, politically, Mm but not socially, but also Osborne. I mean, look at the governor of the Bank of England. You mentioned getting Mark Carney. That was all Osborne. And and Cameron was just saying, yeah, of course, great idea. And then Osborne worked so so closely with Carney. Osborne didn't want uh, the referendum particularly. He could sense it was going to create uh, difficulties very early on when they had that meeting at the O'Hare pizzeria um, on Chicago station and on Chicago airport where they decided to go for it. Uh, with Hague and also I think by the end Osborne's interests diverging and they would have diverged increasingly it would have been really quite difficult which is why I think that they needed to get Osborne right out of the centre. Cameron needed to to be free of Osborne because Osborne's interests decreasingly were Cameron's the more it went on.
1: Lady here. Uh, Sorry, gentlemen. Gentlemen,
2: I I think think you mean me, yes.
1: Um, As a result of Cameron's mishandling of the Europe question Is there a constitutional crisis in the disunited kingdom? And is it possible that Cameron will indeed go down as the worst prime minister since Lord North decided to tax the Americans tea?
2: Yes, uh, it it, it is. Uh, I think that is uh, an absolute uh, possibility. Uh, I do think uh, that that issue of Britain's place in Europe had to be Out to a referendum because it was so, uh, with UKIP it was so fundamentally dividing not just the Conservative Party but Labour, not the Lib Dems. It was so uh, fundamentally an issue on which the country was not united. So in a way, uh, calling it was something that we, right, you might disagree with us. Uh, uh, We do think he had to do it. Our criticism rather is partly the timing of it and the the renegotiation, but mostly the way that he chose to fight that campaign but yeah you know i mean if if scotland uh uh, goes independently um you know that might be a great thing for scotland but it will be very bad for him uh going out of europe if indeed uh europe breaks up into uh warlike states uh, with nationalistic uh, farage trump-like leaders in charge of it uh, you know it's it could go very badly for him yeah,
1: gentleman up there, about towards the back.
2: Yeah, and he uh, knew it. He knew it. Yeah, he, he so knew that. He knew that's what the risk he was risking.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, thank you. Um, you talk about um, Cameron wanting to have the referendum early in order to get the uh, you know, t- to be able to pursue his agenda afterwards. And I think the phrase he used in the book is so that he could pursue his passions. And yet, I mean, personally, my my impression was that for a lot of his time in government, it wasn't necessarily very clear what he wanted to be in government for. Um, do you think that he did have a clear vision for, uh, for his government? Maybe he was as crowded out by the concentration on austerity? Or was there indeed something of a, of a vacuum at the
1: centre of his prime ministership?
0: I think the clear vision at the beginning, at the outset, was the economic one. The fact that they saw the budget deficit as something that had to be managed and dealt with, and that would involve extremely hard decisions, which have been labelled the age of austerity, essentially that was the phrase that George Osborne coined, meant that that was the guiding purpose of the government. And if there's any coherence in what the Cameron government was trying to do, it was trying to restore order to the public finances. Now, there were many arguments about that, how much, how successful he was, whether he got the deficit down by a third or up almost a half, and whether he did it correctly, whether it was too fast, too harsh, but that essentially was the trajectory which he set himself on, set the government on, and to some extent, to varying degrees, people would debate, he did achieve. Now, it was only really once the economy began to stabilise and recover did his initial agenda, which he set out in in 2005, before the crash, of a sort of socially compassionate reforming conservatism, only did that re-emerge. And some people have written it off as the big society, but there were some sort of strong themes there and some ideas. Anthony talked about prison reform as one of them, which really a lot of effort and concentration went into after the 2015 election. And that is something that he has pursued, or did pursue when he was prime minister, quite vigorously. Um, So I think it's wrong to say there was a vacuum. And of course, we we didn't touch much on gay marriage and international development. Those were things that he really passionately believed in. They weren't just vehicles that were politically expedient. Everyone you talked to, even his enemies within the Conservative Party, begrudged him for doggedly sticking to those policies and going for it. And that is something that he will be remembered for uh, as well as Brexit. Those things, people will think in 30 years' time, what happened under David Cameron, gay marriage is probably one of them.
2: At 3.30 in the morning on the 24th of June, he turned to his uh, press officer and said, all careers end in failure uh which was Enoch, Enoch Powell's Powell. word words and he knew that that was what it was up against and it's a way a, a tragedy uh for uh him obviously uh, maybe for the country that at last he had worked out as the question implies what he'd wanted to do at last he got the experience he was not just uh the most experienced politician leader Uh, in this country, but also on the world when Obama uh, leaves in January uh, 17, uh, when Merkel goes, uh, he will be the most experienced, would have been the most experienced leader in the Western world. With a lot of plans he had, he was full of ideas for humane uh, development across uh, the world, uh, rethinking uh, Africa and resorting out the G7. So, shame. tragedy but that's politics. Try and
1: squeeze one last question in. Yep over here
0: please. Okay you've talked quite a lot about his failed delegation to Gove to May and to Lansley. To what extent actually were some of his problems across the whole field of government to do with the fact that he was less a man of detail. Some have described him as Lansley as having not a, a political bone in his body and Cameron not having a policy bone in his body and that's why <laughs> healthcare went wrong. To what extent, if you look at someone like Blair for all the criticisms of it, he was an absolute master of detail into education policy, health policy, welfare policy. Well, I think that is a fair criticism. I mean, the, 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 contra- the comparison with Blair and he really did hone in on policy areas, often a bit like Cameron, quite late in the day. There was sort of essay crisis-like quality to Blair's decision-making sometimes. But uh, yes, I think that is a fair criticism, although, as Anthony said, on security, he did create this National Security Council, this whole mechanism within government, which has turned out to be quite a sort of permanent form of inter- infrastructure and on intelligence and security matters, he was absolutely razor sharp honing on, on the detail there. So yes, he's probably culpable, as you say, on social policy in those areas, okay. but on other areas not.
2: And, and people get elected as, as Prime Minister, not for being great at policy, but for being great uh, at politics. Uh, and presentation. So of the three Ps, it goes presentation, politics, and then policy very much uh, at the bottom. Uh, and just on Blair, you know, he wasn't great on the policy and on his meticulous reading of the Iraq uh, dossiers. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, you know, I think the comparison is fair. Blair had three stonking great uh, election victories. Uh, and what did he do Uh, With those, so I think when we look, you know, we are people can say that we're being too nice uh, to to Cameron. That's uh, you know fine. People can say that maybe it's a fair criticism, but we we do think that despite everything, he was one an honourable person, and but and two, uh, much that he did is is good, and we don't think he had a lot of leeway over that. How do you think Cameron
1: will cope with life? I think well, that's
2: a really interesting mm. question. Because I read
1: that you said that the people who are least suited. Yeah to uh, uh, the office of prime minister, are often the ones who cope best with being out of office.
2: Yeah, Phil, it's, tra- I mean, it's, it's tragic. that, they, that they, They're rubbish, these people, at coping with their lives uh, afterwards. So uh, this is not a plug for the next book, but I'm doing a book about life after 10. You know, what happens to people uh, uh-huh. after they leave number 10? And many of them and their children have pretty difficult lives. I mean, Thatcher... Uh, turned to, to drink. Um, uh, Wilson was uh, drinking already too much after he left in April 76 uh, and w- uh, became uh, uh, g- got Alzheimer's. Very, very few of them. Churchill, I mean, three out of four of Churchill's children uh, drunk themselves or, or drugs. The children also have rotten times. It's very hard to, I think it's very hard to be the child of a uh, somebody in the public eye, uh, anyway. But to live in that building in Number Ten and to have your uh, father as prime minister or mother is extremely difficult. Um, I think he'll probably cope better uh, than many, because in many ways. But we'll see, and we could, mm. um, you know, we, we could eat our words here, uh, that he's more likely than many uh, to be able to cope well, uh, because he's very much. A family-driven person, and he's quite philosophical. You know, he he's not going to be like Blair, try and do after uh, power what he didn't do uh, when he was in power. Um, and uh, sorry, uh, and that wasn't meant critically, uh, but but no, 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 but of but, but, no, he, no, no, but no. it sounded it. Uh, wow. And, and 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 you know, I so we'll, we'll see. I, and personally, I think we'd be really disappointed if he went off and earned lots of money and cut himself off. Um, uh, but it's hard. What does a guy do? He's not yet 50. And, and, and just before Kennedy died, he gave this very moving speech before Dallas in November 63 about, you know, what am I going to do? I'm too young to write my uh, memoirs. I'm too old to, you know, learn to train to another job. You know, and people kind of spit these leaders out, get the best out of them. It's like, you know, not, not totally unlike, you know, politicians. You know, so what's Mo Farrow going to do?
1: I have a feeling that you're going to be here in three or four years' time with your Theresa May book. I th- that certainly uh, sounds uh, as though it's on the um sounds uh, as at 10, on May,
2: the at May, May at 10, May at 10, May at uh, 10, Maybe. Maybe, 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 maybe,
1: maybe not. May at 10, 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 very, very fast hour. Thank you. they'll be in the uh, in the book signing tent if you just let the couple of the three of us get out first we'll be in the book signing tent uh, so please do come and join us and continue the conversation there thank you both again thank, thank you. you
0: more podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube just search for edbookfest